Well, let me pray for us real quick before we get started. God, I thank you for this time of worship that we've had so far, getting to seeing about how great you are. God, I pray that as we go to the time of Bible study, that you'll help us to see truths from your word and let it encourage and convict us, God, right where we need it so that you can help us to walk lives that are faithful uh, to you. So God, we pray that you'll use your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to your word. Amen. I want to apologize in advance. Um, I've kind of been losing my voice. I've been having a pretty rough week of allergies. So if I have to um, put some candy in my mouth here in a second, it's it's just a cough drop. Um, But I'm going to try and go as long as I can. I might have to kind of sum it up at the end and cut it short, though, if I start losing my voice. This morning, I want us to look at a passage that I'm going to say is applicable to prayer. And I've never heard this passage preached upon with prayer in mind. And to be honest, up through a few weeks ago, I'd never read this passage thinking about prayer. But I do think that this passage is very applicable to prayer. Um, Now, it takes place in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapter 2. It's a request that's made to Christ. So it's not technically a prayer because he was there in person. But we make requests to Christ every day. And we can take this passage and Christ's response, and I think that we can apply some very, very helpful tools to our prayer lives when we make requests of the Lord. Now, I hope that this is fresh and new to you guys like it was to me, but we'll just have to see. So, John chapter 2, it's a passage with a request made to the Lord. And the reason why I want to go to it this morning is it's not just a request, it's actually a request that's denied. And this person comes to the Lord with mountain-sized faith. And so often, we hear preached in so many churches that as long as you make a prayer with enough faith, God will answer it. He'll grant your request. And that's simply not biblical. There are other dominoes that have to fall, that have to, have to happen before God will just grant it. It's not an automatic, guaranteed thing. If you have faith, you get your wish. To, to think that way is almost to reduce God to more of a genie-type character in a lamp like the Disney movie Aladdin. And if you rub the lamp with just enough faith, God has to grant your wishes. And to be honest, that does some dishonor to God's sovereignty and to God's holiness. And I want to go to this passage to look at how Christ says no. Because without a doubt, in the year 2018, all of us will make requests to God, and God, for one reason or another, um, will decide that that's not best for us. And sometimes that's difficult. And it's difficult because we don't know why. And the things that I think we're going to learn from this passage will help us to understand maybe why it is that God chooses to not answer our prayers in the way that we expect or would like now i don't want to undervalue the importance of faith i don't want you to think that at all faith is incredibly important 
Christ said that faith can move mountains. And in James chapter 1, it actually says crystal clear that the one who prays and makes a request of God while being double-minded and having a divided heart is like a person that's tossed tossed around on waves of the ocean. And God does not answer prayers that are made from hearts that are lacking in faith. So faith is essential, but faith isn't doesn't guarantee that you're going to get the answer that you wanted. So look in James chapter 2 with me. I think that this passage will help us to answer the question, what do you do when the answer from heaven is no? Look in James, or not James, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's the background to the story, and that's Mary's request. This request actually comes directly from Jesus' mother. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background. When it says, on the third day, we need to realize what that means, okay? What it's saying is, on the third day from the baptism of Christ, okay? John wastes no time at the beginning of his gospel, and he jumps right in with Christ's baptism. This was an incredibly important event in Christ's life. The baptism of Christ wasn't a baptism like normal baptisms that John the Baptist was doing. It wasn't a baptism of repentance. Christ didn't have anything to repent for. He'd never sinned. What Christ's baptism was, it was the consecration of his life to the ministry. Christ went into the Jordan River, the carpenter from Galilee, and he left walking straight to the cross. It was... It was the beginning of the next chapter in Christ's life, the start of his ministry. No longer was Christ to be seen as a simple carpenter from a simple, obscure region in in Israel. He was, after his baptism, solely set on the ministry. He was to be seen as the prophet, the teacher, and ultimately the savior of Israel. And we see this happen, but not only did it marked the beginning of his ministry, it also let the two greatest voices in the world bear identity on who Christ was. God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. And John the Baptist, who was the greatest man alive, said, behold the Lamb of God. So at his baptism, he was identified as divine, being God's son, and as being the Savior. Now, from... Christ's baptism, he wasted no time. The next day, this was all happening in chapter 1 of John. It says the next day he swung back by the Jordan River where John the Baptist was, and John the Baptist pointed at him again and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And it says that two of John's disciples, we know one of them was Andrew, and it's safe to assume that the, uh, the other one was John. Two of John's disciples followed Jesus for a while on the road, ended up eating with him and became Christ's disciples. Then Andrew went and got Peter 
And it's safe to assume that John went and got James at this time, and they became disciples of the Lord as well. On the next day, so the second day after the baptism of Christ, we see Jesus reach out to Philip and call Philip to be a disciple. And Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And it's that neat story where Nathaniel's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus said, hey, I saw you before Philip came and found you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel said, wow, you, you are God. You are the Savior. Now, this is the third day. So Christ is baptized. The next day he gets John, Andrew, James, and Peter. And the next day he gets Philip and Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is actually from Cana, which is where the wedding took place. So it looks like Jesus is in Cana. He calls Nathaniel, and then he spends the night so that he can stay and, and go to this wedding the next day. But this is very, very soon in Jesus' ministry. This is the third day of his ministry. This is so soon in Christ's ministry that he doesn't even have all 12 disciples yet. He could have had more than six. He probably at least had six. But we know for certain that he probably didn't have Matthew, who was the tax collector. He was called later. So this is, this is at the very beginning of Christ's ministry. So that's kind of the background. Um, he's in Cana for this wedding. Now, we have to keep in mind that he's probably not invited to this wedding because of his fame as a teacher or a miracle worker. This is the third day of his ministry. He hasn't talked to crowds yet. He's only been spending time with the disciples. And he hasn't done a miracle yet. This is his first miracle. So he's not there because of his notoriety. He's not there because of his fame throughout Israel. Cana is actually really close to Jesus' hometown, about the same distance as Weatherford and Clinton. It was about a four-hour walk from Nazareth to Cana. And so Christ is probably there because he has a close relationship with either the bride or the groom. They may be friends of the family or they may be extended family of Christ, but he's not there because of his fame, because he doesn't have fame yet. He's not well known. I would also say that it's probably a close friend or a family member because of Mary's role in the wedding. Mary is not just an attendee of this wedding. She's in some type of a management position because she knew that they were about to run out of wine. She was probably in charge of the food and the beverages at this wedding, um, something you don't want to put a guy in charge of. We don't put guys in charge of that in our weddings today. Uh, apparently, Mary was in charge of that at this wedding. So she was probably connected to the family somehow. She knew that they were running out of wine before even the master of the feast knew that they were running out of wine. Because when Christ created the wine out of the water, remember the master of the feast said to the groom, you saved the best wine for last. People don't do that. They serve the best wine first, and then they serve the, the cheaper wine later. So not even the, the wedding party had realized that they were about to run out of wine yet. So this isn't some random wedding. This is a wedding that Christ went to as a guest. And apparently as a close enough guest that he was given, he was given extra slots. He was invited and the disciples were invited. Kind of like when you invite a close friend to the wedding and you say, well, you can bring someone you know. 
So Christ is there at the beginning of his ministry. It's an intimate wedding affair, and they run out of wine. And this is where Mary comes to Christ. Now, I got to be honest with you. Mary comes to Christ with a lot of faith here, a lot of faith. We can commend Mary in some sense for what she does. Think about it. Christ is three days into his ministry. He doesn't have a huge track record of working miracles. Mary is the first person to come to Christ with the faith to ask him to do something supernatural. So even though she gets a no from the Lord, the faith that she exercises in asking him to do something like this is something that we have not seen before. Mary couldn't have thought back and said, well, Christ fed the crowds. Christ raised the dead. Christ can help people who are blind to see and who are lame to walk. Surely he can do this. She's stepping out on faith here, knowing that Christ can do this. And she knows that he can do it because she knew, even back in Isaiah, the prophecy about Christ was that he was Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. And for God, difficulty is not a word that exists. He can do whatever he wants. She probably thought back to Old Testament passages, and she thought, if Christ is God, what did God do in the Old Testament? Well, in the ten plagues, God turned an entire river into something else. And this is just asking him to change a little bit of, or to, she didn't know he was going to create wine from water, but she knew he could do this. So she's exercising faith. She's showing that she trusts Christ. She knows he has the ability and the authority to make this happen. And it's not a simple request. It's not a question. She doesn't come to Christ and say, hey, do you think that there's any place in Cana that we could get more wine? Or, Jesus, do you, can you think of any solution to this problem that's natural? I think she came to Christ because she knew Christ was divine. She's looking for something special here. Now, <clears throat> I want to look at Christ's response. And I want to give us three helpful points from his response for when it seems like the answer from heaven isn't what we were expecting. What can we trust about Christ's identity whenever we don't know the reason why God isn't working the way that we hoped he would. Look at the first thing. And I want to be careful uh, with this first point because I, I don't want us to be guilty of um, drawing too much from uh, a single word. But look at the way that Christ starts his response to Mary. He starts it out with the word woman. And I want to be clear, I don't think Mary's gender is the issue here. He's not highlighting her gender. I think if Joseph or Peter had come up to Christ and made this request, he probably would have started out by saying, man, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Gender is not the issue. Nature is the issue. Identity is the issue here. Why didn't Christ respond to Mary with mother or Mary? Why did he use the word woman? I don't think it's cold. I don't think he's being disrespectful at all. I think he's trying to be just a little bit distant in his response. 
Look at Mary's request. She says, they have no wine. This sounds like something a mother would say. Brian, the trash hasn't been taken out yet. That's just a statement, okay? Everyone can think back to times when mom didn't even have to finish the request. The statement was made, and there was an expectation. The mail hasn't been gotten yet. The trash hasn't been taken out. They have no more wine. She was looking for Jesus to do something, and even her request looks like the request from a mom. And we got to give Mary a little bit of leniency here, okay? Christ was three days into his ministry. Before his baptism, she could have talked to him like a mom. Not a big deal. And even after his baptism, of course, she could talk to him like his mom. But the request that she's making is not a mother-son relationship request. She is not making a light request here. She's asking for the supernatural. And I think Christ is trying to help her realize the request you're making is not the request that a mother can make of a son. It is the request that a creature makes of the creator. That the finite makes of the infinite. It is a request to somehow, Mary didn't know how Christ was going to do this. She was requesting for him to move around the laws of nature and solve this problem. And so Christ is given a request that's given to God and he responds like he would respond to a human. To highlight the distance. Guys, no one can play the mom card to get Jesus to work a miracle. And I don't know for certain that that's why Christ started out this, but I do think that we can take from this our need, and this is, this is the first point, to embrace our humility, to embrace humility, okay? Guys, Mary could have been guilty of thinking that as Jesus' mother, she could make a request for him to work a miracle. Nobody gets the inside track for supernatural events. No one gets the inside track for miracles. Romans starts out, and Paul says over and over again, God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't play favoritism. And Christ doesn't play favoritism. Guys, we need to be careful in our own prayer lives that we don't assume something coming to Christ. That we don't assume that we deserve something because of our relationship to him. If anyone could have demanded something from the Lord, it would have been Jesus' mom. But she didn't get to demand anything. She was just a woman, just like Peter was just a man making a request for the supernatural. Compare Mary's request to every other request for the miraculous in Jesus' life. How do people start those requests? Usually with the word Lord or Son of David, a messianic title. A lot of respect, a lot of acknowledgement of who they were approaching. And Mary might have forgotten that. It's just three days into Jesus' ministry so she's still getting used to the fact that Jesus is in a different chapter. She's looking at Christ and she's saying, she sees that he has a, a following, he has a few disciples with him, but Christ has to start out a little bit distant. So let's just be careful 
to make sure that when we come to the Lord in prayer with requests, that we come with the humility and the reverence that Christ deserves. We don't deserve anything from the Lord based off of our own identity. But we can humbly request for him to do things. Okay, embrace humility. Uh, The two next points are something that we don't have to be careful about. They're, They're right from the passage, okay? Look at what he says next. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Now, I think that Christ is saying, okay, let me illustrate it like this. Mary came to Christ, and this was a big issue to her. They were about to run out of wine. And if this was a family friend, or if this was actually family, she wanted to spare them the humiliation of one of two things. Either not planning well enough, because they didn't have enough wine, or it could have been that they were poor enough that they couldn't purchase enough wine. And in either situation, Mary was trying to save this close relationship that she had with the bride or the groom from suffering the social, uh, the social humiliation or the shame of, of their wedding not being everything that it socially was supposed to be. And Christ had to remind Mary I think in a loving way, this may be a big thing on your radar, but this is a small thing on mine. Mary, what does this have to do with me? Why is wine such an important thing that we have to request a miracle for this? What does this have to do with me, Mary? It's not a super big deal in the scope of my ministry and eternity and everything like that. So, guys, if my first point is that we need to embrace humility in our prayer lives, my second point is that we need to trust Christ's perspective. Trust his perspective. I would think I would probably be ashamed if God pointed out to me all of the times that I prayed for something that was relatively insignificant. And in my mind, it was a big deal. There's probably a lot of times that Christ would have looked down from heaven and said, Brian, What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my kingdom? What does this have to do with eternity? Not that Christ belittles our our needs. or uh, I know that Christ wants to carry all of our anxieties. 1 Peter 5 says that. If it is weighing on your mind, give it to Christ by all means. But let's not make mountains out of molehills. We need to trust Christ's perspective. And trust Christ's priorities like he showed Mary here. What does this have to do with me, Mary? This is a pretty small thing. So, if we ask God for something and he says no, trust his perspective. If it were a big thing to God, you better believe he would have taken care of it. God has something else in mind. I think that the greatest example of this is Paul. And Doug took us to this passage a few Sunday nights ago, maybe a few months ago. Um, Paul comes to God in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he asks God twice to remove a thorn from his flesh. And we don't know exactly what that thorn was, but it was something that was slowing Paul down and causing him pain. And, And Paul just begged God, take this out of my life, please. And you remember what God said to Paul? 
He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul thought that this problem needed solving. And from Christ's perspective, that problem was actually something that could be beneficial in Paul's life. So God said, I'm going to leave that there because my power will be manifested in your life because of that thorn. And there could be times that we come to God and we ask him, God, will you please move here? Will you please do this? And when he doesn't, we can lean on his perspective. We can lean on his priorities, that he will always do what's best for his children, even when we don't see how it's best. Christ didn't want to make the water into wine for the sake of the, um, the importance of the problem. It wasn't a big deal in his eyes. It was just a party. Guys, compare this miracle to every other miracle that Christ did. Feeding starving people. Raising the dead. Helping the blind to see. All of those things are huge things in people's lives. This is just a party. They would have still gotten married without wine. The wedding would have still been enjoyable without the wine. Christ was saying, Mary, I'm not here to save people's parties. I'm not a party rescuer. What does this have to do with me? This is a small, small, small thing compared to everything else that Christ did miraculously. And guys, if we ask God for something and he doesn't do it, let's just trust his perspective. Let's trust his clear view of the problem because he takes care of his children. Okay, let's look at the next thing. Embrace humility, trust Christ's perspective, and trust Christ's timing. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's so neat to actually see throughout the Gospels all of the times that Christ refers to God's timetable or that the author of the book, like John, refers to Christ's timetable. You remember in Luke 4 when Christ is about to be thrown off of the cliff in his hometown, Nazareth? They were trying to throw him off the cliff and it says that his hour hadn't come, his time hadn't come, so he was able to just walk right through the crowd. It also happened during Passion Week. They tried to stone Christ because they realized that he was claiming equality with God. And it said that his hour hadn't come and he escaped from them. Christ operated throughout all of his three years of ministry according to God's divine calendar. For him. And at this time, the hour hadn't come. Not only did it not have anything to do with his earthly ministry, it was just a party, the hour hadn't come. Now, what hour? Obviously, the hour of his ministry had come. He was baptized, he was gathering the disciples. I think he's saying the hour for public miracles, the hour for gathering and teaching crowds, the hour for being in the spotlight hadn't come. Because even when Christ performs the miracle later on, for what I'm going to show is completely different reasons. Completely different reasons. Even when he performs it, he doesn't get recognition. 
from the bride or the groom or the wedding party or the hour hadn't come for him to reveal himself. So Mary makes this request, Christ, fix the wine problem. And Christ says, it's not time for that, Mary. It's not time for miracles. Guys, as Christians, we have to trust God's timing, especially when the answer from heaven isn't what we were expecting. Trust God's divine calendar. Trust his timetable. You know, I think a lot of times, I'll just kind of point at myself here. A lot of times in my prayer life, if I'm not careful, uh, it's almost like I have a calendar open, and I'm like, God, if you could do this at the end of February for me, and then maybe around this time next year, if you could do this, God, if you'll just do this thing, I, I think that everything will be okay. If you'll do this and this and this for me, everything will work out. And God's up there in heaven saying, no, 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 no. I have it all written down up here. You don't know what's going to make everything all right for you. I know that. I'm the one who knows those things. I think God would say, have you not read in Psalm 139, when I inspired David to write, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God inspired David to write that every single day of our lives is already recorded in heaven. That's the type of control that God has over the timing of the world. I think he would also talk, he might point us to Ephesians 2, when Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's talking about specific works created for specific times, for specific people, for specific results. That is an incredible look on God's timing. God has all the details. God has all the days. They're already written out. So when we request something of God and God says no, we can trust his timing. Trust his timing. Because he has everything under control. Ephesians chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. There's counsel within the Trinity, and what actually happens, history never deviates from that counsel. So, embrace humility, trust Christ's perspective, trust Christ's timing. It could be that Christ is going to answer the prayer in his own way, in his own time. There are tons of examples of people that made requests of God and they had to wait way longer than they thought they would. The first and foremost one that pops up into my mind is Abraham. Abraham asked God for an heir. How long did Abraham have to wait? Decades and decades and decades. And Romans chapter 4 has some incredible things to say about Abraham said that he didn't waver concerning God's promise, but he grew strong in his faith as he waited. He had to wait a long time. And I'm sure for Abraham, every day that passed without his wife getting pregnant with a son was a day that Abraham realized he wouldn't get a spin with his child. That's a day I'm going to miss. That's a day I'm going to miss. I know God's promised it. Why is he 
wait, having me wait so long. Abraham was over 100 when he finally had his boy. But he had to trust God's timing. And Romans chapter 4 says that he did. I also think about David. Samuel came to David and he anointed David to be the next king in Israel. Did that happen the next day? No. It didn't even happen that year. David was promised to be the next king in Israel, and he had to put up with Saul, of all people, for a long time. To put up with Saul's jealousy, to put up with Saul's attempts on David's life. David was the next king in Israel, and Saul wouldn't relinquish the throne. Saul tried to hunt David down, and David had to live in the desert. But did David grow frustrated and forget God's timing? Not at all. There was an instance when David snuck into Saul's camp and he could have killed Saul, which would have solved, in a human perspective, would have solved the problem. And David said, there's no way I'm going to raise my hand against God's anointed king. That's David trusting in God's timing. Guys, when we have prayers and they don't go answered, trust God's timing. Embrace humility, trust Christ's perspective, and trust his timing. It can be one of the most comforting things. What if our prayers were like this? God, to me, today seems like the day. In my human perspective, now seems like the time I need this. But I don't trust my view of time. I trust your view of time. So in your way, on your day, at your complete discretion, if you will, will you answer this request and just leave it at the feet of God for his timing. Now, those are the three simple points I want to point out. Embrace our humility, trust his perspective, trust his timing. Now, I have to ask, why did Christ go ahead and perform this miracle? Because it really looks like Christ is telling Mary no by explaining why he won't do it. And then he goes ahead and does it. And I have to ask the question, why? If it wasn't the right time, and if it didn't have anything to do with his ministry, and if she might have not even been asking from the, the right relationship perspective, why did he do it? And I think that it answers it. And I love this. Look down in verse 11. <clears throat> he performs the miracle, makes gallons and gallons of the wine. And you remember that the master of the feast said, this is the best wine. Why did you save this for, for last? So Christ didn't create B quality wine. It was A plus quality. He does all things well. And then at the end, it tells us why. Look in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and what? Manifested his glory. Now, who did he manifest his glory to? Not to the crowd, not to the wedding party, maybe not even to Mary. Because after she made the request and he said, hey, my hour hasn't come. This doesn't have anything to do with me. She just said, do whatever he tells you to the servants. Looks like she might have left. So who was it that he manifested his glory to? He manifested his glory to six servants who carried the jars of water in from the well. And he manifested his glory to the disciples. And look what it says. 
and his disciples believed in him. So here's, here's what Mary says. Mary says, it's time for, for us to have some wine. It's time for a miracle to save the wedding. And Christ says, no, it's not time for that. But it is time for me to manifest my glory to the disciples. Mary said, hey, they're a close family friend. They're family. This, this is related to you, Jesus, to, to save the wedding. And Christ says, what does this have to do with me? But you know what does have to do with Christ? Manifesting his glory to his children, to his disciples. We see Christ in this passage make the water into wine, not for the wedding, but for the disciples. He did it to manifest his glory and to build his disciples' faith. They had only been with him for three days, remember? Christ wanted to give them a glimpse of his glory, and he did. He didn't get any praise from the wedding party. There's nothing in this text to make us think that Christ hung around for a while and people worshipped him or thought, oh, this is just incredible. But the disciples thought it was incredible. So here's, here's kind of my last point in conclusion. Even when God says no, he always does what's best for his disciples. He always does what's best for his children. And what I think is so cool about this Mary asked for the miracle. The disciples didn't even know to ask for the miracle. But Christ looked into their hearts, and he knew that they needed it. And he took care of his children when they didn't even know what to request of him. Guys, when God doesn't answer our prayers, like Christ didn't answer Mary the way she was expecting, we can trust that he always does what's best for his children especially concerning their spiritual health. Guys, the wedding party just got to enjoy the benefits of Christ taking care of his disciples. Because he pointed out to Mary that the whole wedding scene might not be deserving of a miracle. But the disciples' faith led Christ to do an incredible thing, his first miracle. So, 2018, when we make prayers and we don't know how God's going to answer, embrace humility, trust Christ's perspective, trust Christ's timing, and know that at the end, he always takes care of his own. We're going to have a time now um, where Larry's going to come up and lead us in a song, and you can respond to God however he taught you from this passage this morning. If you want to talk to Skylar or Larry or me or my dad, that's great. You can talk to us during that time or after the service. But let's just take a little bit of time and respond to, to Christ as he lovingly tells his mom his motives for responding.